Welcome to the Child Care Business Podcast, brought to you by ProCare Solutions. This podcast is all about giving childcare, preschool, daycare, after school, and other early education professionals a fun and upbeat way to learn about strategies and inspiration you can use to thrive. You'll hear from a variety of childcare thought leaders, including educators, owners, and industry experts on ways to innovate to meet the needs of the children you serve. From practical tips for managing operations to uplifting stories of transformation and triumph, this podcast will be chock full of insights you can use to fully realize the potential of your childcare business. Let's jump in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Childcare Business Podcast. My name is Ryan Gwaltney, and I'm thrilled to have you join us today. Welcome to episode two of our podcast, and boy, do we have an amazing guest today. Rhonda Myers is co-owner of Heartfelt Impressions Learning Centers, of which there are three locations in Michigan. She's recognized locally and statewide as a passionate and committed leader in the field of early education. She is a proud alum of Hope College, where she completed her Bachelor's of Arts degree in psychology and sociology. She also has a master's in early childhood education from Oakland University. Rhonda has served on the faculty of Baker College, Henry Ford Community College, and Schoolcraft College. She currently serves on the governing board of Michigan Association for the Education of Young Children. She is the past president of the Metro Detroit AEYC and is active in the Great Start Collaborative, Oakland's strategic leadership group, and various committees of the collaborative. Rhonda, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Ryan. I'm really excited to be here. Did I? So so quick question, reading your bio, did I hit everything correctly? Was everything that we stated? It, yep. Yeah. Um, so the only difference is like the great start collapse. Some of those things have kind of tapered off in the last year and a half. Uh, Clearly, you know, we have a lot of things. That, a lot of things uh, going on. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been, there's been some change over the past year. We'll talk just about. a couple of things. So I got to ask about this because people, when they listen to this podcast, our audience isn't going to be able to see, we were joking about this before we came on the air about people aren't going to be able to see the video portion of this, but what I'm, what I'm looking at right now is the one piece of art on the wall sitting behind you. It's the only thing I see. And I want to ask about it. Sure. It says, be fearless. What, yeah. what does that mean to you? And why, why is that? It's obviously important enough to be hanging there. So talk to me about it that. It is. It is. It's actually the first thing I hung. I, we just moved into this office uh, two days ago. And uh, it was the first thing I hung up to remind me. And the funny thing about it is you're not really fearless, right? Because everyone feel, feels and experiences fear but it's what you do when you experience it. And for me, what's proved successful is to push past the moment where the fear starts. And sometimes I act fearless, even though I don't feel fearless. Love that. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard people talk about uh, what courage is, you know, people think that individuals or groups who are courageous don't feel fear. But that's actually not the case. Courage is just moving forward in the face of fear, right? And so, yeah. It's so funny that you would choose the word courage because as I reflected today on our conversation, you know, I know that this is an opportunity in a really difficult time for me to share something that 
will hopefully be meaningful to the early childhood community. And during the pandemic, I did a, a virtual keynote um, and it was called Courageous Leadership. And so I studied the word courage and their original definition of courage, like when it first came to our English language was from the Latin word core, which means heart. And so the original definition of courage was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. Amazing. I did not know. I have had a chance to read some notes, look into a little bit of history that we have here at ProCare with yeah. you. I got to see a speech that you gave, I think at some point over the last couple of years, but I wasn't mm -hmm. aware of that speech that you're speaking yeah. of. Um, so I, I do want to like, I think threaded through this conversation today. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to continue to talk about that a little bit and layer some things in, but I, I and I, this podcast, you're exactly right. is so much about what can we draw out from your experience and your story and your history that is going to be inspirational to our audience. Cause I think that is super important for people to just have people to look to in the industry, but also tactically. Like, I think sometimes we can focus a lot on the story side and people will talk about details in their story and, and, individuals who hear that will come away and say, yeah, but how did she execute that? Or how did she go about that? So I also want to talk some specifics, but I, I want to just give people a chance too to get to know you a little bit. Can you talk about going way back? Where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? And, and maybe just as an open-ended question, when you think of your childhood, what comes to mind? What could you share with people about where you grew up and how you remember that? Well, I'm not a spring chicken, so I grew up a couple decades ago, and um, actually the first decade of my life I spent living in Detroit, and um, during a time that was probably the last time I remember in my lifetime being as emotionally charged about race and differences as we are today, um, and so, you know, that plays a role in how you reflect and who you're spending time with. And, um, but when I really reflect on my childhood, I think the model that my parents gave me were two things. Um, it was one, see people, like see them. I didn't know that's what they were teaching me before. They were just, you know, like you get to know people first, right? You just, you don't judge based on what you see. Um, and and giving that that opportunity and then i can every time in my lifetime that i've thought i'm afraid this is too hard i can't my mom's answer was always you can of course you can and i know that i was blessed to have that experience after the first decade we moved to like a very rural i drove the i rode a bus for the first time in third grade i walked to school before that so it was a dramatic change um, and it was small town. So there were two very different experiences. So moving from Detroit to a rural area, walk, walk me through just for me out of curiosity, you walk out your front door after you moved into a more rural setting. What do you like? What do you see? So Rhonda yard walks out her front and woods, That's yard. It. like yard and woods. And we moved to a place where homes were being built. It was like a new development of, just these little ranch subdivisions, but we were 
there were so many places being developed. And I think I spent the next six years building forts and climbing trees. Yes. Literally. There's not enough of that for kids nowadays. It doesn't mm. seem like so kids in the neighborhood, you met the the neighbors and you would meet and the rule was something to the effect of when it starts getting dark, come home. That that is literally my dad taught me how to whistle. I would do it, but it would make you literally deaf. And when we heard the whistle, it was dinner and you had better be home. And that was but it, I mean, I have four grown children and one left in high school of my own. And it, it, it has definitely changed that feeling of comfort of sending them out and not worrying. Yeah, I think that was a skill that they must have taught parents when they were kids, that generation, because yeah. that whistle seems to be a universal. <laughs> my father-in-law, my wife still talks about that exact same whistle. And then he also had like a finger snap when they were within earshot of the finger snap that was like the loudest sound. She still remembers yeah. that too. So what, what about, do you remember as a child, like during those early years, thinking about what you wanted to be when you grew up. I know, you know, I want to ask a follow-up question about your mom too, because it sounds like, yeah. you know, which is the case often, it was a huge influence on you. But do you remember thinking in, or as a young child, what you wanted to be, or even thinking about those types of things? Um, my mom had this book for me where I circled every year what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I think it changed every year. I do remember like at times wanting to be a teacher, but it was always deeply influenced by the positive relationship I either had or did not have with the current year teacher. It's so. amazing. We'll, we'll, we'll maybe double click on that at some point, yeah. how impactful teachers can be. And then what did your, what did your parents do like growing up? So like, would you uh, consider yourself growing up? Were you in a, in a home where money was always, you know, available? Was it was, always rough? Was it a stretch? Talk to, talk so about that. interesting. I mean, my dad um, was, first of all, I was a product of probably the first generation. There weren't as many kids as I was who came from a divorced family. I had young parents. My my biological parents divorced when I was a year old and my mom remarried before I was five. So my stepdad, when I re reference like growing up, I'm referencing my nuclear family being my stepdad and my mom. And then I have brother and sister. But my dad, he came back from the Navy and um, he worked for Cadillac Motors. And when we moved to in the shop and when we moved to Lapeer, um, I wanted, he'd leave work at 4 a.m. And on one of the first year, he was hit by a drunk driver, fifth drunk driving offense that this man had and hit my dad on his way to work, crossed over the middle line. My dad broke his back and essentially he couldn't return to the work he did. So I remember my dad getting up to deliver newspapers. I remember my parents because at the time my brother was young, like five, and my mom hadn't been working. She'd stayed home from the time, I think he was born. Born is when she stopped working. Before that, she was a single parent and working. Um, and so they started cleaning doctor's offices and like whatever it took. And at that point, my mom went back to work as a secretary in a real estate office. And by the time she finished her career, she was a broker who closed, ran entire offices and closed. Um, like when you go to buy a house and the title company does the closing for you, that was her. She was the numbers girl. 
So, and my dad, when he finally did get work again, it was in a shop and just about, I guess it's been three years now he's been retired. So, okay. And yeah, so you, as and a so first you, generation college graduate. Yeah. Amazing. So when you, was college always something like growing up that your parents, did they set the expectation that that was the next step in life or was that you crafting that narrative for yourself? No, my parents want, you know, they're, it, it's that traditional story of your parents wanting more for you, right? There, there was pressure for grades and there was pre- pressure for performance. And, you know, this was the answer not to have the strife and challenges that we had had, you know, that having a degree opened doors for you that had those kind of things happened, you truly have more choices. And, and you know, I, I would say based on my life experience, that's true. That's worked out. That's and, and and so you immediately started studying psychology and sociology. And what was the idea or what was the thinking at that point on how you were going to translate that? Was it still kind of thinking moving into being a teacher or education or did you have different thoughts at that point? I would, I, my plan was to go to graduate school and be a school psychologist or social worker, probably psychologist, but you know, I dabbled in the social work place of, I had a deep passion to change the world so much. So when I look back now, my junior year of college, our, our social, uh, one of our social work professors, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. in a big old van, literally drove all night, slept on a church floor and marched for homelessness. Like I was literally going to change the world. I'm fire. And so, you still are changing the yeah. world. We'll, 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 we'll get to that. Way. Yeah, for sure. So at what point then did, did the dots start to connect in terms of your, your, kind of march into the childcare industry, into early education? Because it sounds like that's this post-college. There was something yeah. that came up. Talk to me about, you know, because I'd love to spend, yeah. I always tell people this, I would love to spend all day and hear like every yeah. detail of your story because no, I love to hear people's stories. But I talk to me about as you get out of school and as you kind of start looking at a career, yeah. at what point did childcare come into view and, and how did that happen? I don't think that my story is unique based on my experience um, because I ask people's stories. And so uh, got married while I was still in college, my senior year to my college sweetheart. And we, the very first year out of college had a baby and I worked in a job I could get because, you know, with a bachelor's degree in social work and psychology, you need grad school. And that just wasn't in the financial cards. And I was miserable. And the short story is then I quit working. And during that time, I was so, I was 22. And when I was working, everybody said, oh, that's such a shame. Someone else will be raising your child for you. And I was mortified. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can't have people thinking that about me. And so then when I stopped working, uh, people would say, oh my goodness, that's so just devastating that you wasted all that money on that expensive education. Mm-hmm. And it hit me and I realized, well, crap, you know what? It turns out I'm never going to be able to make everyone happy. So I was mm-hmm. taking all this cues externally from what I was supposed to do. And I had so much energy and passion, but I loved being a parent. 
And my husband, luckily he was in tune and really understood who I was and was supportive. But his way of being supportive was to start bringing home newspapers when ads were in newspapers with jobs circled. And it's actually it's actually his credit because he was the one who circled the job as a preschool teacher and said, the best of both worlds, you would be with our son, Jordan, and you would get to be with children, which, oh my gosh, you've always been happy when you're around kids. It sounds perfect. And sure enough, I interviewed for that preschool teaching job and they hired me as a director in training. And that's where the story started. And that's where it started. So you went in, interviewed to be a preschool teacher. They said, there might be a path for you as a teacher, but we see some administrative credentials. Did you end up teaching for a little bit in the classroom as you were in the director, I guess, mentorship program? Or how did that work for you? Oh, no. (laughs) No, I was in a director (laughs) role within... Oh, I want to say six to 10 weeks. Over the years, I've been in teacher roles. I've chosen to be in teacher roles. But at that time, mm -mm, no street cred whatsoever as a director. (laughs) Just be a director. We need you to run some things. So, so, and then over time, how long were you in that role? And then when did it transition into, I want to talk about, because I've heard you discuss this a little bit already in, in a, presentation I saw, but I want to talk about your transition into ownership and and how that worked. But how long were you in that initial role? And then how long between that first position as a director and when you owned your first school? Okay. So I was in with that company for five years because I had my second son who was a preemie. They allowed me to kind of write my own part-time position, doing some troubleshooting and supporting directors and some coaching. Um, I left there again to balance my family. We had moved and um, took a position with less responsibility teaching for that period of time because we had one, we'd gone from one to three children. Um, And then honestly, I was doing something for my church and got a phone call in the town that I lived in that they, that they, my church wanted me to help them, you know, you know how it is at church. They're like, hey, so that's you're willing what you to do. help. Right. Yeah. Right. And so they wanted to know if they could have a preschool, like a traditional little preschool in the church as they were doing an expansion project. So I called the township forum and they said, Oh my gosh, call the people across the street. They're building this huge early childhood program. Well, there really was no other early childhood programs in our community. And I skipped, hold on, I skipped something. I only worked for that job in the teaching position for a year, and then I did home daycare. Um, so I was a licensed group home daycare provider for five years because I decided I needed to get that grad school done. And I also had a fourth child. So my husband traveled and that fit for our family. So, that's so I did a- that for five. So that's a follow-up podcast at some point is talking to your kids about what it's like to have oh. your mom running a home daycare. We could do a whole, like a whole series on that. I'm sure. I'm going to need to do some filtering if you're going to interview <laughs> my kids. So you did oh. the whole home daycare and yeah. the, tr- the church asked amazing. you for, for some insight yeah. about helping their vision for a preschool. Yes. And then you connected with, you said there was another large school opening in town? Yeah. These people who were building a center literally across the street from my church. And then when I asked them the questions, they're like, well, who are you and what do you know? And uh, I was like, uh, you know, da 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 da, told them kind of my history. And 
then they started talking to me about a job and I was like, Oh, I worked for myself for five years. I don't know if I want to work for somebody else, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to build something amazing in our community. So in 2002, I said, yes, took the job. Literally all it was, was a piece of land. I took over the architectural drawings with the architects, everything from there on out built, wrote the job descriptions. So it was the equivalent of being an owner but I didn't, like, it wasn't my capital and I wasn't the owner, but everything I did, I carried around the blueprints for a year. I literally set up shop in the library to build excitement and show people and do interviews and tours because I didn't have a building. And so we broke ground in like August of 2002 and we opened in June of 2003. And I mean, this for 2003, this center was licensed at the beginning for 250 students. And we were NAEYC accredited within 18 months. So you can't apply for accreditation in less than a year of existence. And by the 18 month mark, we received um, notification with over 250 students that we had achieved accreditation. Wow. And and so you started that process, the NACI accreditation 12 months after you opened. So the actual process took you six months. You guys got everything buttoned up during that period of time. Yeah, because I'm a strong believer that if you're going to speak for quality, it's not about checking a box. It's about living in a culture where that's an embedded piece of the culture, not just like a static quality is something you're always kind of evaluating and and adapting in any world. Um, And so it's it's a part of your practice, not a box that gets checked and then you go back to it in a while. Yeah, like that's a great way to describe it. It's it's who you are. As a company, mm-hmm. as a school, as, as a person, as a person, and what you kind of want everything you do to be influenced by. Well, talk to me about because I, I want to fast forward a little bit because where I want to sure. spend a, a little bit of time, or at least the rest of our time, is you know I think your story. So many people will be able to relate to you know. Look, there's ups and downs as I worked for this owner of the school. There were really high highs in terms of what we built and and what we built for our community. Community and there were some rough times, but it, it, it all kind of culminated for you into a period where it was time for you to, you know, pursue your, your own dream or own ownership. And, and I, I want to talk about how that unfolded for you. And I want to talk both what was happening for you, like mindset wise, I think it, it lines up with, you know, what we talked about at the top of the show of being fearless and courageous. Mm-hmm. But I also want to talk about the tactical piece uh, of that and how you actually made it happen. Because if I heard your story correctly, you did it with no money. Like, I think that's a a hurdle. A lot of people see hurdles and they say, there's just no way I could pull off something that I'm feeling called to do because of X, Y, or Z. And can you talk a little bit about what was happening for you? Um, just your own self-talk at that point. Like, how am I sure. going to move myself forward? And then can you also talk about how you opened a center with no money? Yeah. yeah. So, um, and stop me if there's something that you want me to hone in on. Sure. In May of 2008, I had I had four children. Of course, we we're in a recession and my 18-year marriage to my college sweetheart ends. So that was a major life change. Three months later, my dad is diagnosed with liver failure. And the only chance for him is a transplant and it has to happen very quickly. 
Um, fast forward mm, nine months later, in April of 09, my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. In May, within a month, my little sister, because of course I'm divorced, right? So I have an extra half of my bed and I only have four children and six seems better than four. So my baby <laughs> sister says, I'm going to move in with you. I'm going to bring my one and three-year-old because she lived in Connecticut and her husband you know, needed to work. And we were going to share caring for my mother, helping my dad through chemo, radiation, long trips, all of the things that it took to care for somebody who's going through such an intensive battle for their life. So we literally did like 2009 version of the Brady Bunch. Six kids in the house between the ages of one and 18, literally chaos every day and battling all these things. And uh, about four months later, my dad was given two weeks to live. Um, and 10 days later, he received a liver transplant, which was incredible. And anybody who's ever gone through the transplant process, it is unbelievable. And three days later after that, my oldest son left to go away to college. Now, if anybody knows Michigan, you know, Upper Peninsula, Lower Peninsula, he picked a college called Michigan Tech. It is 10 hours away and he could have gone to Georgia Tech and been closer. <laughs> so um, it was a bit emotional to have that first baby leave the nest and a year and three days after my mom's diagnosis. So about you know, three quarters of the way through my son's first year of college, I lost my mom and my children lost their grandmother. The same mom who told me anything I couldn't do, I could. And on her funeral was on a Tuesday. And during this time of 2009, one of the owners had decided to take a more active role in the business. Up until this point, they literally gave me metrics they didn't come in the building. They didn't want to have anything to do with day-to-day -day operations. But because of the um, recession, they felt they weren't making enough money. Now, we'd only reduced maybe 10 to 15% in, in our enrollment, but there was just this push. And because her background was CEO, engineering, manufacturing kind of background, she kept using terminology like lean manufacturing. And I'm like, it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And I, and I started to see the writing on the wall. I was being pushed to do things that I wasn't comfortable doing. I was asking to treat staff in a way that didn't resonate with who I was and what I believed. But again, I'm a single parent. I have one income, all these other things going on in my life. And my mom's funeral was on a Tuesday. And on that Friday, this particular owner, there were three owners, sat me down in my office and she said, you have a two week administrative leave. You need to grieve, get over it, get back here and make us some money. Wow. And I was like, what, what? So I was supposed to take two weeks. Um, she said I had cried in front of parents and, and I was like, these are parents. What, what she couldn't understand from the outside that is so unique to early childhood and all of my peeps listening will rec re this will resonate is that you don't do this well you don't do this work well unless you are in deep respectful and reciprocal relationships with families and your staff that's the only way it can be done well and i believe that with every 
cell of my being. And that means that parents have come to me when their marriages were falling apart. Parents have come to me when they've had miscarriages. They've had family members who are like, that's just the world we live in. And so to say that part of it was I needed to be stoic and execute and it just didn't fit with who I was. So I took that two-week leave and I decided, you said, what was the tactical? The tactical could have been, I could have blown it up. I could have tried to get people to side with me. I could have done the whole, like, this is so unfair thing. And I literally said, I will be who I am to the core of my being. I'm going to take this time. I actually flew to Sedona, Arizona, which is why the only money I did have in the bank, which was less than $4,000, I used to take a trip for three days to take care of myself and to grieve and just let go of some of it without my four children. Um, I came back and a month later I was diagnosed with cancer. There's a few things going on in this season of life. Yeah, just a couple. And, you know, if you like collectively, when I put it on paper, I'm like, holy crud, like, oh my gosh, except in the moment, what I was telling myself is this is hard. This is so hard. But when I reflected the gratitude I had for the house that I had, that I was still, you know, able to keep my children in or, you know, that I had a job or that I was surrounded by people who loved me or a tribe of people who believed in me. And so I guess the tactical part was really both the resiliency to say, I still, I can do this. Like, this is super hard, but I can do this. And surrounding myself with other people who believed I could and a heart of gratitude. Like I was, had to be grat grateful. What, is that gratitude for you? Do you is that something you learned over time or is that innate to who you are? And, and I guess the, the reason for that question, is that something everybody you think can learn or you yes, either have absolutely. it or you don't? I think some people are predispositioned, right? It comes easier to some people. And I, I definitely think that our, well, we know because we're early childhood professionals, we know that our early years and the trauma we either do or do not experience, you know, impacts that dramatically. We know that the neural pathways that are created by our experiences early in our life are kind of, you know, that net of, you know, but that doesn't mean you can't. I think that the each one of us is presented with a choice each time, right? Like this is either something to overcome or this is something to tell you to quit. And you get to choose how you respond you to it. You do. And so, and so you came back from Sedona. I, I, I want to <laughs> ask about, and I think there were some things that opened up and doors opened around your first school that you purchased. Not yet. Not yet. So it's still working through that. So, okay. I'm so talk working. about. I came back to work. So I took the two weeks and I'm like, I'm going to prove that I can do what they want. So, um, and then of course, you know, a month in I get cancer. So what happens is I have, I'm supposed to be on a six week leave, right? Cause it was a major surgery. Um, but, but here's the blessing. Do you know how I found out I had cancer? The short story is when I went to Ser Sedona, Arizona, something happened that, that forced me to go get a screening test. That's a whole nother conversation. That screening test saved my life. 
if I hadn't been put on administrative leave, I wouldn't have gone to Sedona. If I didn't go to Sedona, I never would have gotten that test. And I don't know what the outcome would have been. I don't know what stage my cancer would have been in. And so that to me was a gift. Well, but two weeks into my leave, my long-term employee, Amy, who'd been with me at this point, oh gosh, 15, 17 years, she says the preschool down the street that was independently owned and operated, the Montessori is closing. And I'm like, okay, the big push for us was you need to get more enrollment. I'm like, come get me. Because I literally got home from the hospital the day before. She goes, are you nuts? I said, look, if you don't come get me, I know where my keys are and I'm going to drive myself. So knowing me well, Amy came and picked me up. I drove to the center. I hobbled up the stairs somehow. And I said, look, I know you're closing. I would like to make an offer to your families, right? I want to capture it's like 40 FTEs. Um, and she said, that's great. I'd also like a job. And I'm like, Ugh, we don't like mon- teaching two different curriculums in a school. I don't know. But I was, I was so um, micromanaged at that point that I said, I'd take it to the owners. Well, the long story short is the owner's the one strong voiced owner thought it was a great idea and also behind the scenes decided this must be a perfect person who would be compliant with the things she wanted to do. And slowly over the next, let's see, that was like June. So June to February, the next seven months began the behind the scenes behavior to remove me from the position and put this woman in my position. Wow. And that's what happened on February. I think it was February 11th. I used to know this, like it was an important date in my life. And isn't it funny how time changes? Not an important date. So February 11th is no longer an anniversary date for you to, uh, to think back on. It's an important date, but it's no longer an anniversary date that, you know, you, some anniversaries bring you grief and some bring you joy. Um, this, this started out as one that brought me deep grief. Understand for all nine years, I have poured everything I had, sacrificed time with my children. And I know so many leaders in early childhood, this will resonate with them again, is like that feeling pulled. I need to decide between my own family and doing this job well, right? And because we don't give our leaders enough tools um, early on to be successful, we're, we're constantly in that juxtaposition. And so, you know, in my mind, they had promised me always that I would be able to buy the business. So that was always like, I'm pouring in because someday this will be a future and this is my dream. And it became very clear that wasn't what was going to happen. Um, and so on February 11th of 2011, I was fired for my present from my position and I like, I mean, we could talk hours about each decision during this time, but I immediately went to, here's the blessing. I had given a keynote a year and a half before I had stopped with one class left in my graduate program. Somebody in that keynote said, I want you to come teach for me, finish that master's degree. I finished my master's degree in December. My mom wanted to see me cross the stage and my mom died in April. So like all of those things happened. And because of that, I had just agreed to begin teaching college courses part-time. And so there was 
help with my finances that had happened way before. Like all of that was in place, but I didn't know it way before it happened. And so for me, my faith is a deep part of like why I believe these things happen. But all the time things are happening to us that we can interpret as insignificant, important, or negative. And I think that path, that putting ourselves out there, that trying, even though it might not be an immediate return on something, there's always for me been a greater return when I give without expecting something in return. And so, you know, I was I was terminated on a Thursday and on Friday, Amy, who I mentioned had been my long-term employee. Like I hired her when she was 17. She's followed me in this journey. Um, She was six months pregnant and they told her, choose your loyalties. You can stay, but da, 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 da. So, and I just want to, yeah, sorry. I just want to confirm the timeline on this. This is February, 2011. You said, is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. The reason why, that's noteworthy. I was looking before we started this podcast at some of our notes of working with you. And it's amazing. At least the first note that I see from the school that we're talking about that you guys, I, I think, move forward with was March 1st, 2011. So literally 10 years ago yesterday uh, was the oh very my first. Gosh. Yeah, the very first note that I saw from Shauna, who you've worked with for many years, mm-hmm. uh, was March 1st, 2011. So that transition from you know, being fired and let go to actually taking that and saying, and going back to your point from a few minutes ago, like I I get to make a choice here. This is going to knock me down and is going to cause me to feel sorry for myself and to take a step back, or I'm going to choose to lean into it and move forward. And it sounds like you did that really quickly. I didn't really, okay. I'm having like an Oh, wow. Moment. Because, you know, when I tell you that we literally filed our LLC paperwork and signed a lease in June, June to February, you're like, okay, well, at least you thought about it for a while. But now you're saying the first phone call I made was March 1st. Like, I don't think I thought about it for very long. Yeah, you just got after it. I mean, well, what happened was ultimately they fired Amy. So she came back and said, you know, yes, I'd like to continue. And they're like, we changed our mind. So when you hurt me, you're right. I believe I'm just, I'm going to go, right? I'm going to do, I started doing more consulting. I do a lot of coaching of owners and early childhood programs, help them, you know, with training, things like that. I was like, I'll just pick up consulting gigs. Um, And I was able to do so quickly, but, but then they hurt someone I loved and I felt responsible And this whole time I've always wanted, like deep inside me was this space that said, like, I want something to call my own. I know that I can do it well. And I, and I'm deeply passionate about it. And, and so, you know, doing it for yourself, you know, it, yeah, but I have four kids and maybe I should, you know, and so there's this self-talk of do you, don't you. But now when you tell me, I also have this person who's followed me and and believed in me and stood beside me for 17 years. And because I, now mind you, she was right along with me and standing in her truth to say, we can't do these things or we're not willing to, you know. Um, So like our value system and our, our core of who we are is completely aligned, but we're completely different. And, uh, and I looked at her one day and I was like, 
we're going to start our own early childhood program. She goes, um, with what money? I'm like, I don't even know, but look, the program that had closed that I went to right after my surgery to try to capture their kids was a building right down the street. And because she was now running my position and her building was open, I could go lease her building and I was going to set up shop right down the street. So talk to me about that negotiation, because I, I do want to talk a little bit about just the really practical side so so that you okay. could maybe share some of your wisdom and experience about how you made that happen. So there's an empty building. It's not free. Whoever owns the building wants to make some money on a lease or selling it. Can you talk specifically about, do you remember that conversation mm-hmm. with the owner and how you were able to negotiate with no money? Mm-hmm. an opportunity to open your own school. So, and as a female, uh, and, and this is this is a reality of my own personal experiences. Often um, we're seen as sweetie, honey, and you love children and that's so lovely. Um, but I don't apologize for being a shrewd businesswoman who is respectful and ethical. And so, you know, I walked into the conversation with confidence and I just said, first of all, I'm a note taker. So like, I know who the person at licensing is. If I get a phone call to a person who handles the paperwork, you better bet I write her name and number down. So I know I'm going to need to use that for future reference. I make sure I educate myself on things so I know them well, right? So this idea of of launching a new program, I've done it now either consulting or for other people half a dozen times, I think at this point, but never for myself, at least half a dozen. And so I know the ins and outs of launching, but you're right. I literally have no money and my business partner has no job. And so they're living on her husband's income. And by the way, she's about to have a baby. So I'm like, you know what, if it's meant to be, we'll figure it out. But first we have to figure out if it's an option. So we just keep proceeding as if it's going to happen. Um, Ultimately, um, as we started figuring out what we needed to do, we were like, how inexpensively can we do this, right? So, you know, pretty much, I mean, we've been handling budgets for multi-million dollar budgets, and this is a little budget for years. And and I've launched programs for other people. So I know what it takes to make a break-even analysis. I know how many kids it'll mean that enough money comes in for the amount of money going out, right? I've, I've educated myself on that or been educated on it. And so we take all those things and I just, I went to the landlord and I said, you have an empty building. And I asked for more than what I thought I could get right? So, I mean, just good business sense. You have an empty building, you're getting zero dollars and zero cents, um, you know? And so I, I negotiated for a six month, no rent. So I said, I'm not going to be able to build revenue. So part of it is people having confidence in you, willing to tell your story and say like, this is why I'm capable. You know, you might see somebody who, you know, is a single parent, unemployed, has no money, or you can see somebody who is confident and competent. And I know my stuff. I know my stuff. I can tell you what it's going to take. Here's what I'm doing to do it. I know how to do it. Um, But in order to make it happen, I need this. 
So, so you had to understand, so you walk in understanding, here's what I can bring to the table. I understand the person who owns this building is sitting here paying taxes with, Mm -hmm. you know, no rent coming in and understanding their position. You made a case to say, look, it's going to need a little bit of a runway to get ramped up. But based on my track record, I think I'm a worthy risk. And once we get ramped up, you're going to have a long-term tenant. And the equation is yep. going to work out really well for you. And, and there's not a lot of other people that are going to come in and try to open a school. So you've got a small group of people that you could literally use this mm-hmm. building for. And I'm at the top of that list. I can yep. come in and make this happen. And that landlord or whoever owned the building at that time mm-hmm. looked at the opportunity and said, it makes sense. Let's do it. He said, okay. So we got six months. It took, um, <laughs> And we knew the quicker we started having money come in, the better off we were going to be, right? Because that would be cushion of not paying rent and only having other (laughs) overhead. And so, I mean, you know, we got our equipment for garage sales. We only bought the equipment we needed for the number of students we had. So sometimes people go big when they're trying to open a center and they, they figure out all these things that they have to have. And so there are two discerning decisions you make when you're opening a program. One is what what you need and what you want. So need and want happen in two different ways. You discern what things are worth spending quality money on. I'll be honest, like, and you're not asking me to say this, but I've used ProCare since 2003. ProCare was one of the things we were like, huh, we're going to have to spend the money but we've been using it for 10 years. We knew it did everything we needed it to do. That was a place we'd spend the money. I believed in the biometrics. I wanted good security system. I wanted the things things to integrate to themselves. So I'm like, yep, that's the place we have to spend money. But we can buy equipment used because it doesn't diminish its value, right? So you have to discern what things you desire and what things you have to have. Um you know, hand book keeping wasn't going to be a thing, right? And knowing where your money is coming and going quickly to be able to print a report and say, this much money has gone out, this much money has come in, this how far we are from being break even. That matters. Um, so we were discerning. And when we figured out how much we didn't need to just skate by, um, Amy's parents took out a home equity loan and my mom, my dad gave me a portion of my mom's um life insurance. And we started it on, when I say a shoestring budget, I mean, literally nothing. (laughs) It was a risk, but a lot of determination, a lot of grit, a lot of doors opening people supporting you in it. And I think I've heard your story, not to, not to spoiler alert, Mm -hmm. but uh, I know you guys were able to return all the money to your investors. And and obviously after six months, the school was taken off and, 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 Fast forwarding, I want to be respectful. So my my production team set aside an hour for us. So I'm going to use the full hour, Rhonda. But they they may uh, get mad if we if we take too much of your time too. But fast forward to 2021, current state of heartfelt impressions. That's the name. You have how many schools? How are Great. things? Three schools. I know the past year has been a, an interesting year that nobody mm-hmm. planned for. Uh, how? 
what is your outlook today? Maybe as kind of an ending to tie this podcast up a little bit, and there might need to be a session two where we can uh, double click sure. on a few of these items. But can you talk for our audience a little bit about your personal outlook on the industry as we look forward? And anything that you would share with maybe young child care providers, young entrepreneurs in the space, yes. if you could encourage them in any way about their path forward? I will. I should tell, there's one thing that you should know about the story. So the middle, do you, are you saving it for the end? Uh, no, you share anything you want to share. This is all about you. Well, so I, hear I think so. That's the struggle of 2011. And of course we chose to expand, which is a, it's a funny story how it happens, but one we don't have the full time for, but just before I did that keynote that you listened to about um, kind of this journey that I've been on, right? The last eight, nine, now 10 years, um, just before that, you know, like literally when I got asked to do it, it was on my bucket list, state AUIC, 3000 people. I'm so excited. And I'm like, I know what I'm going to talk about. My keynote's going to be stand in your truth. And I'm like, oh my God, did I just say that? I'm about to stand up in front of 3000 people and tell them I got fired. People who respect me, I'm like, oh, and I mean, my close friends know my story, right? I mean, people in my early childhood circle know my story, but I was like, oh man, literally two hours before I got on stage, I got a phone call from the people who, one of the owners, not the one who actually fired me, but one of the three owners saying, I want you to buy our business. We can't make it work anymore. Firing you was the worst thing we ever did. And two so two hours before your speech. Two hours before I'm about to get on stage and tell this story. And I can't tell that part yet, right? Because of non-disclosures and all that good stuff. And like there's obviously more to that part of the story. But on November 1st of 2019, I signed the documents to buy the company that fired me. Literally a full circle story. That was the same company that you carried around blueprints for the building and interviewed yep. people in the, in the local library because there was no space <laughs> yet. So you, you, you purchased your original school where you negotiated the lease for six months without a payment. You now own, as of 2019, the original school that you helped start. That's number two. And did I hear, do I understand correctly that there's a third school as well somewhere yeah. in between there? Yep. yep. So we did two start from scratch, right? Buy a building or a former building, not buy a building. One is lease, one building we own. And then the third one was an acquisition. And then obviously buying the, the business we used to run, was, it was an acquisition. So yeah, that was November of 2019. And then we, we, they're down the street from each other. So then in December, we moved all of our operations from our first location because this building is licensed for 400 students. So we went from a very small to big. So we combined from four back to three in January. And then of course, mid-February. Did something happen last February? I'm trying to remember if there's anything that Not happened Not mid-February, mid-March. Mid-March, yeah. Mid-March, right? Everything's going along. It's going amazing. We're like, we literally did. Oh, by the way, I negotiated for the owner to also do 
uh, all new flooring and paint the building and all these things that needed to be done to the building. Um, and so those were just finishing in February. And then of course, in March, we went on lockdown in Michigan, like mid-March. So like, all right. Interesting story. Yeah. And then that whole year of lockdown, reopen, new regulations, new restrictions. I'm sure over the past year, there's been a lot. And I, I think there's going to be some amazing stories from individuals like yourself all over the, the industry and the country coming out of 2020. Because it goes back to what you said earlier too, Rhonda, about you know during those difficult times, they feel like a struggle and they feel like they're knocking you down. But when you look back at them, it was actually the very thing that built you up and mm-hmm. allowed you to grow and move through that. Do you yeah. just just for the sake of time, because I, I do think, you know, at some point, you've, it's been amazing to spend time talking with you. And I think this story and your experience is going to resonate with a lot of people just as maybe a final piece, 60 seconds or less, like if you're standing in front of a room of, you know, thousands of early childhood, early childhood educators, entrepreneurs that are looking for some insight about you know, moving forward, it, what would you say to them? What, what would be a, a, a parting uh, piece of advice or wisdom that you could share with others in the industry? So I'll tell you three things, and then I'm going to share with you something I wrote to myself on April 16th of this past year that I think is embodies those things. Standing in your truth means staying true to who you are, even when you're scared beyond belief it always works out. It just might not work out in your timeline. You've got to keep going. Every great leader story you hear, every great success story you've ever read about says like there were all these moments, right? All these moments when Babe Ruth had more strikeouts than he had home runs and he would have stopped being known for the most strikeouts ever, except he kept getting up to bat. He kept getting up to bat. And I think the defining factor is that resiliency, first of all, to keep getting up to bat until you have those successes and then surround yourself with the right people. If someone is toxic, if someone takes away, they're not going to change no matter how much you hope. You know, those core people, they've got to pull put into you, not take away from you. And then be smart, like literally be smart, educate yourself, go out, take control. Don't wait for somebody to give it to you. Don't say, no one ever told me that go find it yourself. I spent the first month doing every single webinar I could about the PPP loan because I wasn't going to wait for chance. I was going to go take it. So this is what I wrote to myself on April 16th, because every day my business partner and I would say, do we close? What do we do? Like, should we stay open? We have not closed one single day of the pandemic. Now, part of that is is a blessing, right? That we didn't have a positive case early on, but we remained open. But just because on the other side of it, it sounds like it wasn't scary and great things have happened because of it. Every day it was scary. And I just said, this is what I said to myself, I'm done worrying, period. Worrying didn't get me this life that I love so much and it won't win it back. Nine years ago, I had nothing. Well, nothing but four incredible kids I love more than air, a man who loved me with abandon, a ride ride or die business partner, 
and a huge tribe of family and friends that believed in me. I've got too much skin in this game to even consider throwing in the towel. And not a single person who knows me would describe me as the kind of person who gives up. So yeah, I'm pissed that something outside of my control attacked the strength of my business. But my gloves are off. I've caught my breath. Look out world. I'm coming back with a vengeance. Can't think of a better way to end this session than just let that sink in and i'll i'll end by saying this Rhonda. it's uh, shauna told me it would be a lot of fun talking with you i got a chance to to research a little bit about your story but uh it certainly hasn't disappointed it's been a pleasure and i know oh, that that this is going to be um you know a session that resonates with a lot of people and that's our hope with these podcasts with these interviews is that we can share some of the amazing stories and expertise from individuals like yourself with others out there who need to hear it. So um, great job. And thank you so much. Honored to be here. Honored to serve. Thank you for including me. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Childcare Business Podcast. To get more insights on ways to succeed in your childcare business, make sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you want even more childcare business tips, tricks, and strategies, head over to our resource center at ProCareSoftware.com. Until next time.